pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. If we're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water, leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice on <laughs> it. I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> When will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Catherine. And this is Angriment with Michelle and Catherine. We are going to each bring in three things. Something weird, something pop culture-y, something research-y, and by the end, try to figure out how they all connect. Let's do it. So I think I went first last time. I think that's right. Okay. What? I'm glad because (laughs) I'm not too stoked about my weird thing. I am stoked about my weird thing this week, but it's not that weird. My my weird thing is also, my weird thing is not snappy. It's not, it's hard to explain why it's weird. It's more just like this thing is bothering me and I can't figure out why. Is that what? The weird thing is going to turn into because last week <laughs> last time it was um your fire stick breaking which was a real saga so i think i think by weird it's just going to be like this is a thing in the world i don't like let's let's please um complain about it together i like that i like that a lot okay <laughs> so what are we complaining about so especially since it's angryment right gotta have yeah. a little a little anger to get let's us started agree on what <laughs> makes us mad so I'm reading The Growing Season by Sarah Frey. Have you heard of this? Only through your social media. Okay. So it is um, it is, a, it is a good book. I want to start by saying that. I am not, not, <laughs> un, I'm not unrecommending this book. I am enjoying okay. it. It is, very, it, is, it is a very enjoyable read. It is very well written. It is a very compelling story. Um, have you read Educated by Tara Westover? Yes, because... You recommended it. <laughs> okay. What did, you, what did you think of that? I'm having trouble remembering it. She's she's like the, she was un, like unintentionally homeschooled. Like her parents. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Like her parents like. I liked it. Wouldn't let her go to school and were terribly abusive. Okay. So this is in a very similar vein, an incredibly smart, self-motivated, hardworking woman who grew up in Southern Illinois. So in fact, like she talks about, in fact, one of the people that um, was the president of the community college she attended actually worked at the community college I worked at. So like we, like I recognize names and places as I'm reading this book. Um, And so she, she grew up on kind of a farm, but her dad was um, like this you know, kind of con artist who was always trying to get into racing horses and it was never working. So they were always like really broke, but they also lived this very isolated life where they all just grew up on this farm together, her, and she had a whole bunch of brothers and she was the youngest and like they would hunt all their own food and a really kind of 
rough life and her parents were physically abusive, but she makes a lot of like, you know, but they were living hard too, kind of excuses about it. But so it's, it's kind of this, this story about, um, just this scrappy, rugged individualism, American dream kind of narrative, right? In much the same way that Tara Westover's Educated is. And I'm kind of seeing these connections in these, um, these stories of successful women that have to perform their trauma in a particular way through these memoirs. Uh, and yes. so that's my something weird is that is the performative trauma of these memoirs. And the something weird in particular is my feelings about it because I'm definitely somebody who believes that you should get to tell your own story and that if it has trauma in it, you should get to tell that, right? Like, right. and and so I don't think that, so I'm trying to figure out how I feel, why I feel the way I feel about it. Because I think that they're telling a meaningful, authentic story in a powerful way. And as somebody who believes in storytelling and believes in honesty and authenticity in that, th- that's exactly what I think people should be doing. Yeah. But there's still something about, I think it's the reception of it that bothers me more than the writing of it. Ooh. And it it's like the way that it gets recommended, like, oh, this book is so good. And it reminds me of when I was watching Chappelle's show. And like, sometimes people would be recommending Chappelle's show and be like, it's so funny. And I'm like, are you laughing for the right reasons? All the reasons Dave Chappelle <laughs> quit and like dropped out of life for a while. Yeah. Well, not life. He dropped out of the entertainment industry because he said they were there were certain people that were laughing too hard and not for the reasons he wanted to be laughed at. Yeah. Yeah. And I wrote a paper about um, Chappelle show in graduate school. And he actually, like, he says that the moment that set him off, that, that the, the spark for all of that was um, during the pixie sketch. Do you, do you remember this one at all? So it's yeah. where he's like the little, you know, like the devil and angel on your shoulder cartoons, but instead he was like racist caricatures And so he was trying to convince himself to be like, to behave in, in racially stereotyped ways. And so it was during the filming of that sketch. And he said that in particular, there was a a white middle-aged man on the set laughing in a way that Dave Chappelle heard him laughing and was like, oh man, he's not laughing at the thing I want him to be laughing at. And he was like, he just knew that the satire wasn't getting through and that Mm. the thing he was trying to draw attention to was actually the thing that was causing the laugh. And I don't think that the people who are recommending this book are like recommending trauma. I, but I do think that they are, I mean, it's almost like the trauma gives these women permission to have this level of success. Powerful. Yeah. No, I, I, I guess my question would be absolutely anyone who has a story and wants to tell it should have an outlet for that. And I really am a big proponent of you can only make art of any kind from your own lived subject position. I write about that a lot. I get really upset at artists who like don't do that. But I guess, so your issue is when that changes from telling somebody's story to like you had said, it's a performative trauma. It's performing trauma. They have to perform trauma. Yeah. And, and I think that that's in, it's hard because I don't think that the 
author can control that, I think that's about audience reception because the performative nature of it is tied up in the reception and the way that it gets passed forward, not necessarily the story itself. How much of the book is like kind of that past? Um, so I am, I haven't quite finished it yet. And she's only solidly half, I would say. Solidly half is kind of that past. So it's, but it's not like the end point and it's not the No, definitely majority. not. Uh, but it I is, do think that from what I've seen, that's where people pay the most attention to when they're talking about it. So it's a reception thing, probably. That that's what people glom onto. And then it might even be, what might be bothering you is that it's something that certain women or women have to do in order to tell that second half. Yeah. And I also, like, I think that there's something... I think I'm responding to it on a very personal level too, as somebody who grew up in poverty and is now because, you know, my husband and I both have professional degrees and are around a lot of people who did not grow up in poverty that sometimes like, I'll just be telling a story from my childhood that I think is just like a story, right? Like I'm just, I'm just being a person talking yeah. and like the, <laughs> the room will kind of fall silent. And so they're like, Oh, thanks for sharing that. And I'm like, Oh, oh I wasn't. No. I wasn't like sharing that. I'm just talking. <laughs> like, like it wasn't. Thank you for thank you for that pain. Yes. And then you feel like you're performing right. a drama when you're right. just telling a funny story about your blind goat living in a satellite dish. Exactly. <laughs> and and I mean, they're never the stories. I'm like, oh, I have stories. You like, have stories. That oh my was goodness. not one of them. What like, can you give me an example? I think I was just talking about like some of the food we used to eat when we, you know, when we were out of food, right? Like, like there weren't groceries coming for a while. So we had to get creative. We weren't starving. We had to get creative with the food that was in the cabinet. So I think I was just like telling some story about the crazy um, like recipe that we would have to put together from the scraps that were around. And then like, you know, be, oh, thank you for sharing. Thank that you. Me. Thank you. Um, But by the way, not to um, take away from your performative drama right now, Michelle, (laughs) but yeah, I grew up with you and I, I did not grow up in poverty. We grew up like different economic positions, but I grew up with you and we were friends most of your childhood. And I just remember like some of maybe, you know, some of the things that I joke about now, but it was like, oh yeah, it's because of that grocery situation where I would go to your house and I would gorge myself on white bread with butter (laughs) because we weren't allowed to like have white bread in my house. And it was just the best. It was mana from heaven. And I would just eat like a whole loaf of bread and butter. And I loved it. That toast, that white bread toast in your house was one of my favorite childhood meals. (laughs) But yeah, it's because that's what there was a lot of time. Right. And I mean like of the things that if I had to start listing childhood traumas, having to occasionally put together a weird sandwich is not on that list. Yeah. There, yeah. There are times I tell stories adjacent to you. Like we had the trailer you got to like clear out and we would just often get almost burned down. And it was like, Oh, we were just burning a bottle of a pile of bottles of alcohol (laughs) and Playboy magazines. magazines. What? What? There's a lot of follow-up questions. But it's like, no, it's just, that was, that was, was just Phil's house. This is what you did at my house. It yeah. Was, it, was, it was a strange place. So I get, I, I, I definitely, yeah. I'm really interested in, I mean, also then it's about the consumption and why is that what people want to focus on more than the second half of the book when they talk about it? 
Mm. Yeah. And so did you read a little life? Yes. That got a lot of critique for being just trauma porn, which it is. I mean, it is. I occasionally just read the like plot summary of a little life to people when I'm like, I, I'm trying to describe because it, it is so traumatic, but it's so beautifully written that I don't think I realized like how traumatic it was until I read the plot summary on its own separate from the book. And then I was like, this Ooh, sounds yeah. like if you just read the plot summary, like it, it I, it's very uncomfortable to think like, yeah. why would you read a, it's a long book. Like long, why would you read that much book that does about that? this thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, that stuff that really made me think and bothered me because I loved it so much. I recommended it to everyone and it just didn't, it somehow seemed to be like anti-performative of trauma. It was so full of trauma, but like you said, it's a beautiful book and I just, it, that's just interesting. Yeah. Weird. This, have you seen Antebellum? No, I need to. Okay. We have so, to talk about it. You told me we have to talk. Yes. And oh my God, I totally, oh, it slipped my mind. But what do you think about the, because you really liked it, right? I really liked it. And so Ivan and I both really liked it. And Ivan, Ivan is my husband. We don't always like the same things. Um, and we, like film is one place where our taste definitely I mean there's a there's a Venn diagram of of a sliver where we find <laughs> our our overlap but um we have very different tastes in film in particular and um we both were like wow that was a really good movie right like that was oh, just man. really well only, done and then we immediately the movies gets you there together <laughs> otherwise that I know <laughs> It was, it was not, there was, it was no Mandy. Um, so we, Highly recommend. That's a weird movie, everybody. Mandy with Nicolas Cage. So we immediately started looking at reviews because we had avoided reading anything beforehand because we didn't want any spoilers. And um, ev- like everybody hated it. Like there's so everyone many. Everyone hated it. Everyone hated it. And I, like we were, we, we just sat and dissected it for like an hour that night. We're like, okay this person is saying this. And I'm like, that's just, that's just not true. Like some of it's just factually inaccurate, like what they were describing. And I think I, this won't, this won't spoil anything, but I think it's kind of like a parable. Mm. Like it's, it's, and so it doesn't have, I, I think like people have been conditioned to want so many like deep twists and so many layers. And I do think it's somewhat of a blunt instrument but I also think we're living in a time when sometimes you need a blunt instrument. And so I just like, it was, it was a beautiful blunt instrument and it was an effective blunt instrument. But I think that people just were watching it because they wanted to watch all these twists and turns and shocks and layers. And instead what they got was no, here's the thing. And, and that it feels like they were responding Mm -hmm. to it, not being enough of a experience for them. And I, I don't, I'll save the rest of this rant until after you've okay. seen it and we can watch it together. But we'll catch back up after. But the reason I brought it up is that a lot of people said that it was trauma porn and I don't think I agree. And so maybe we can talk about Good. that. Good. I'm really time. glad to hear that because I read those reviews. I was like, oh, fuck. But I'm definitely going to watch it and I trust your opinion more on most of these things. All right. Okay. So that's my something weird. No, that's really interesting. The reception of the growing season or the growing season. I think that's going to go well. 
with my research. Ooh. We'll see. Um, so my something weird is basically, I mean, there's so much weird stuff in the world. This is the category I find myself having the most trouble with. And I thought before we started this podcast, it was like, oh, all these weird things. And I'm like, well, it's I don't because, know what's weird. It's because weird is relative. Yes. And so when everything is weird, you're like, well, these aren't weird anymore. This is, these are just things. Yeah. It's just the, bleh. so, um, short of like a bear crawling into my house and making me a sandwich. I don't know what would strike me as weird. So oh, this thanks is for sharing that with me. <laughs> it, was, it was, it was not white bread. So <laughs> my trauma of, <laughs> Anyway, um, so my weird thing is that for this very podcast, I wanted to make the image, the little logo for our podcast, and I thought it'd be really fun because we are, as we've mentioned, childhood friends, like fourth grade, fifth grade, and I remembered, I was like, it'd be fun to get a picture of us when we were little to have as the image, and I remembered from my memory this photo. And it's a photo, if you remember, my Aunt Connie took you and I to New York City to see cats. I definitely remember. It is one of the formative experiences of my childhood. Yes. So amazing. And I watched the cassette a million times after that. Um, I really love cats. And I think it's because of that. But because I saw it in person with you and my Aunt Connie. In this picture, as I remembered in my mind, we are at a restaurant after the Broadway show you are wearing my old graduation dress from earlier that year, my middle school graduation. Um, a, a somebody, about I almost said like a full name, a certain someone we were also friends with as children said it was weird and she hated it, but it was cool. Mm. And then I'm wearing from Delia's a dress that has a photorealistic print of a mountain. So the, the fabric is, looks like a mountain landscape of a photo. It was a very cool dress. And I have not seen this photo in ages, but I remember this. And I remember we both look unhappy. And so I thought that would be very funny to have us glowering, dressed up. And so I started going through all of my photos and I went through all my photo books. I went through like my little... Um, City Museum in St. Louis lunchbox that we bought together. I think we I remember. Yeah, I keep my very special photos in there. Um, went through that box, went through all these albums, and I'm in the albums. There are lots of pictures of you, and there are photos of me, and there's pictures I've taken of you. There's pictures you've taken of me, and there's no pictures of us together whatsoever. What? Finally, find the picture. I find it and there you are glowering in this cool dress and there are two little girls next to you that I don't even remember and then it's just my arm. I'm totally cut out of this picture which I remembered as being a wonderful picture from a wonderful moment of you and my friend and I'm not in it. And I'm like what jerk was taking this photo? Are we the same person? Is that is that how this movie ends? <laughs> that's isn't that weird that you don't that is one so of us doesn't weird. exist one of us is the figment of the other one's imagination are we fight clubbing it oh <laughs> oh no i don't my uh, i don't remember fight club enough to make a really smart reference off the bat oh man so yeah one of us is a figment of the other's imagination because there are no photos of us together 
I have all these photos of me with friends from high school that I don't even remember who they are. And yet you. I have a memory of a photo of us together in a, in your cow field in, on a sled. I feel like I'm going to, I'm going to try to find it. I'm going to see if I can find try it. To find it. it. To you. But and it's, it's going to be like it. the, the people who think that, that is it Berenstein bears is spelled. Yes. <laughs> like that's what it's All these be. photos of us that we remember are just the, uh, Oh, what is that called? But the alternate. Oh, the, the something effect, the. Berenstein bears effect. It's not though. The, yeah. Um, oh, well, but yes, that thing. I mean, it's that. So we're fight clubbing it. We're Bernstein bearsing it. That's my weird thing, though, in a nutshell, is that I can't believe no photos of both of us together exist. I have extensive photos of you sitting in the gas station in our small town that we grew up in, holding photos of like my boyfriend's faces in front of your face. And then I took a photo of that. There's some, it's not that I don't have photos of you. Of it's your amazing a, prom hair, yeah, did like a medieval network oh, yeah. thing. My neighbor did that. It took like five hours. It was very cool. I have like five photos of it. Back when you had to go to Walgreens and get your photos, I thought that hair deserved a full five frames, but none of us together. I'm going to so. dig through my, as I have a, a big box of old, like actual photos, I'm going to see if I can find, if I can't, then we're definitely the same person and we're going to. Yeah. Tune in for the next episode <laughs> where we fight. Let we do fight to see which is which is the figment, which is real. Je suis original. <laughs> what is your pop cultural? So my pop culture cultural thing is, um, I think I've mentioned before that I ghostwrite for celebrity gossip places. I go straight for lots of places, but those are the most fun ones, especially for the pop culture category. And because of Will and Jada Pinkett Smith's marriage entanglement thing, there's been a lot of new discussion about their personal lives. Um, and like whether or not, whether they're Scientologists, whether they have an open marriage. And a lot of people seem real concerned about like, I told you so I told you their marriage, marriage was messed up. And I'm like, they still seem okay, so I don't know that you really told us any. I don't know. As, the investment people Why have in people want them to fail. Jeez, I, like the investment they people have in amazing children. So okay, the, actually, so their children is my pop culture thing. Ooh, I want to so, hear about them. So I um, am interested in the way that we talk about their children um, through the pop culture lens because Willow and Jaden Smith th- frequently people will talk about how they grew up without discipline. Like they'll even say that like Will and Jada Pinkett Smith were um, like bad parents because they didn't punish their kid. I mean, really they do a lot of the same parenting style that is very much promoted and normalized in in my peer group anyway, as as a parent, like my other parenting friends and myself, we ascribe to a lot of the same things that Will and Jada Pinkett Smith said that they did with their kids. Like, you know, it's like, we don't, you know, we're not punishing them. We're letting them find natural consequences. We're, you know, allowing them to explore their own interests rather than forcing them into a very rigid, you know, box of what they have to spend their time on. And I, to me, these are pretty just normal parenting ideas at this point, because that's what I have adopted since, I mean, my oldest is almost 10 years old. So for a decade, that's kind of just 
the stuff I've been steeped in. But it's really interesting how people talk about it specific to those kids. And mm-hmm. I feel like it has to just be jealousy. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't have any other explanation there, for why. I could go into a long debate about it, but no, I agree. They're just jealous. Have you seen Neo Yokio? I mean, come on. <laughs> I forgot the name of the Smith son. Jaden. Jaden Smith is the voice of the main character and it's okay. very good. I That's another thing. I loved Neo Yokio. I've only seen the first season, but that was another one that I loved. Grant, my husband loved and everyone else seemed to hate it. And we were up, we were up at night reading their reviews and being like, are we crazy? <laughs> Did we watch something else? Yeah. I don't have a whole, I just, I just feel like the, the, the way that they get talked about in public is it feels just strange to me that people feel the need to try to bring these. I mean, at this point, I don't think they're kids anymore. I think they're both adults. Yeah. Try to just bring these young adults down. Like, did you like, and just wanting to see them fail because it feels like it proves something to them. I just feel like it's very strange. So you're pop culturally. We're saying leave Willow and Jaden alone. Well, don't leave them alone. <laughs> Just like what the Arthur making. I mean, I, I guess pop culturally, my thing is like, if you're spending your time watching someone else because you want to get proof that you've been holding on to this idea that they will eventually fail, and you're just following their lives to someday prove that to yourself, that that stop. Yes, yeah, stop doing stop that. Stop it. That's a bad Go. use of your time. Go paint Go. something. My pop culture thing is um it's kind of it's kind of I'm torn because it's kind of two things and that's because I really just want I read this article this week and I want everyone to go read it because it is a trip it is a roller coaster of an article the whole time I was reading it I was going I was just gasping and going ah and making like really loud noises to where my husband's like, what are you? He kept like forgetting and be like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he would run from the other room. Like, it's just this article. And it has, it comes with videos. It has YouTube videos throughout um, pointing out all the things. But basically it's been on my mind a lot lately for a lot of reasons that just sports are so interesting. All the bubbles they're trying to make and then just how political sports are. Right, people say, "Oh, you keep the sports out of politics," but sports are so inherently political. Yes, and I mean they tap into our very like base nature of wanting to belong to a team, which is also very and political. do the other team fail, so there I'm. I'm <clears throat> You're already already doing the work. Yes. <laughs> um. So wanting, yeah, this 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 total tribalism and us and them, ugh. and so of course there's been. You know, the WNBA, the NBA, um, the NFL has been doing it for a long time. Some some soft protests, right? They're barely protests and they make people really mad. So there's that, of course. And then I just feel at the same time, a few weeks ago, Caster Semenya, who is a runner, she's an Olympic runner, and she has just for over a decade now been really, really mistreated and um testing just to be herself in her own body it's it's really hard to so hard um and I yeah um so 
I think they just found out that some a position from 2019 was overruled and she doesn't get to run these races. And she's a runner. And basically, if you don't know, um, she, when she's, I think in like 2009, really improved in her running. And people said, oh, something's amiss. But it wasn't even that, right? It wasn't the improvement. Like you said, it's what she looks like. And she looks really muscular. And um, so people said, we need to do like a sex test on her, a sexual, oh, what is it called? Um, like a sex verification test that the World Athletics Union does, which is horrific to me that that's a thing. And it can be a blood test. She's had those where she gets some her hormones tested, but there's also been like actual, let's see what you like get naked test. It's really terrible. It's a terrible system. And the rules have changed back and forth so much since she has started her career that half the time she can't compete and sometimes she can. And there's a um, lot of testosterone rulings about how much testosterone can a woman have and still compete before it's a performing enhancing drug. And there's allegations that she's intersex. But anyway, that just really bummed me out because I'm a big fan of hers. When um, the 2019 ruling got overruled, not in her favor, she switched the sport she ran because they were only doing this limitation in certain distances. And those were the distances she did. It was like really personally attacking her. Anyway, so that was on my mind. That's not what this article is about. But uh, so I was thinking about that. Sports are inherently political. And then I read this article, which was in Defector, and it was by Devorah Myers, and it's called The Greatest Clusterfuck in Women's Gymnastics History. And it is such a good article. And it's, again, I cannot recommend it highly enough. We will put it in the show notes and everyone just go read it. And I don't want to talk too much about it because it is beautifully written and it really is um, an exciting read. But anyway, very briefly, it is about the 2000 Sydney Olympics and the women's all around Olympic gymnastics tournament that happened there. And basically, not to give too much away, but just read the article, even if you know what happens, they misset the vault, the horse, that when for one of the runs, I, I just read this article and then I'm forgetting the terms. I don't really follow women's gymnastics too much, but which is why this article is so good because I'm not really interested in women's gymnastics and all of a sudden I'm reading about the Sydney Olympics in 2000 and I cannot look away. So the horse, the pommel that they project themselves off to do the jump for one of the all around competitions where they run at it and then push off and do really fast spins was set wrong by a lot. And this is such a serious and tight competition that they were saying that these are women who will adjust their routines for the brand of the mat they're using which is just like millimeters right. change things. And so I think this was off by five centimeters, which is so much. And, you know, they're throwing their bodies at it, going as much. And so a lot of them didn't even touch it. And the Olympic, the, um, the United States, like most successful Olympic competitor at that point, who was like definitely going to get gold, she really almost killed herself. 
She was so good. She is such a gifted athlete that the minute her hands did not connect, so she had no push off to finish a spin, she was able to calculate it midair while panicking and flip over entirely onto her back when she really should have landed on her neck and died. And there's a video of it in the article and I, it's hard to watch, but it's amazing. The athleticism it takes to save your own life midair in like a blink of a second. So tons of, so it was set wrong. They're doing the all around. There's other events happening everywhere. And all of the Olympic athletes, all these women keep missing in really bad ways. They keep falling. Um, The Russian hopeful for gold just shattered her knees. She fell on her knees several times, just boom, boom, boom. And um, they were really injuring themselves. And you can see that again and again and again and again and again. Every person who does this fault messes up. And so go read the article because it gets into even more detail. And then the end with the person that actually wins the Olympics for the all-around women's gets her medal taken away for different reasons. So if you think you know the article, you don't, please read it. And it was very interesting listening and watching the videos and listening to the commentators who were commenting on it and to see the gymnast reactions and read about what they thought. Because all the gymnasts said, this has to be my fault. Every individual gymnast, nobody even imagined there could be a problem with the equipment. And so even though everyone was failing massively, they all internalized it. They said, it has to be me. This must be my fault. What did I do? You can watch the videos and see some of them go back and like check their starting marks again and again and again. And no one realizes that the equipment was just massively misset at the start. And so then the commenters are like, yeah, this was never really her strongest one or then they start saying, oh, everyone's spooked. Like it's the fucking crucible or something that this one person messes up and it causes all the women to be hysterical. And it just bothered me so much. And I was like, if this had been a male sport, this would have gotten caught much faster. It might not have been caught immediately because I think the way sports are, are really problematic that it's going to be your fault. You internalize it. But it was just, it, it took one of the athletes to stand by it and not move for anything to be done. She had to just say no, because she realized finally it wasn't her. Well, and I was really- That seeing all those other, compet- all those other people competing at the highest level, all failing in, around you, but maybe you're so intensely focused on your own mistake at that point that you're yeah. just- that was them. You got to read the article because it does interview them. But so that I understand, especially in Olympics. Apparently this was like the height of Larry Nasser. So the U.S. Olympians were in no headspace to speak up right. or to fight for themselves. And then the other gymnasts were also at very, were internalizing it. And then to hear the commentators be like, oh, women, oh, ladies, what's wrong with them all? And just be like, well, they're not very good at this one. It was infuriating. And it just made me think of, I teach, and last time I talked about Foucault too much, but he has a really good writing on like the medicalizing gaze and how in the history of medicine, doctors are always right 
And if they're not right or their instruments aren't right, then it's the body's fault and the body is wrong. That the authority of the doctor and of that power system cannot be wrong. And so they will instead say the body is wrong. And there's a really great article I love so much called Birth Control for a Nation by Chikako Takashiti. And she talks about that in this, and read that article too, it's amazing. Um, she talks about the history of birth control and how she talks about, you know, that um, for birth control pills, they basically locked women in cages in Puerto Rico to study it. But then the IUD, the history of the IUD, it was kind of this space race for controlling, for population control, right? In like mainly the global South. But uh, anyway, it gets into that. It's a great article. But it does talk about as all these men rush to make the most effective IUD, they had some really, it has images of them. But if the IUD didn't work, all of their writings were that it was the woman's body was at fault, that this IUD was infallible no matter how they designed it. And they would just say it was a unwelcoming womb. It was, you know, her, they, they called them sloppy and loose sometimes if they would come out. Oh my and gosh. Then, yeah, they eventually, because they did want it for basically eugenics and like genocidal purposes of mass um, sterilization of women, but they just wanted to stay in no matter what. And there's, there's something called the daikon shield that has these spears sticking out of it. It looks like a bug with legs, but that's just metal prod. So it would stick to the lining of your uterus and um, never come out. And it would meld with people's flesh and it would cause mass infections. And most women ended up becoming sterile from infections from this daikon shield. And they wrote, well, good. And it's just doing our job more permanently for us. Anyway, I could not stop thinking about that and how it's not the equipment, it's not the system that's wrong, it's gonna be your body and you're wrong. And just seeing that repeated in this article about the Olympic gymnastics, it just really brought that home. So read the article and just keep that in mind, that idea of it's always gonna be the body of the other that is out of line in a system not built for it. Ugh. So yeah, but it's such a good article. The article is very fun. I took it to a dark place, but the world is still happening. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I was just thinking as you're talking about the IUDs, like, I mean, obviously on a much less serious scale, but still, you know, I know so many people who have said like, this is not like I have all these symptoms and I think it's from the IUD. They started when I got it. And that's just, I mean, any birth control, like I don't want to malign one of them in particular and, and have their doctors say, well, no, that's, it doesn't have those side effects. That's not possible. That's not, that's not, it, it doesn't cause that. And it's like, well, it started when I got it. So it seems yeah. like probably it does. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's not right. Exactly. It's not, it's not it. It's you then. And you're wrong or you're lying. Yeah. It's still rampant. That idea. Anyway. Okay. So I think I, I think this is gonna work. I don't think we're. I think I I have a pretty point. yeah. I, I have uh, yep. Okay. And my something researchy, I think is gonna work too. Nice. I'm so, excited. 
my something researchy. Go. My something researchy is the Nash equilibrium. Do you know what this is? No. Okay. So the reason that I had to look it up is because I am teaching a um, a class on the Good Place. I teach online classes for homeschoolers, and I'm teaching a, a philosophy, exploring philosophy with the Good Place. And I am not a philosophy professor. I am a rhetorician. I, I teach writing, but um, this is a class that is mostly just a discussion class. It's so it's designed, you know, we to look at each episode, but it, they all, they do have to create some presentations at the end. So I put together these little research guides um, with a bunch, they have to pick between 10 questions and it's like, you know, is it ever okay to lie? And one of them was, what's the best way to make a decision? Because a lot of the characters in the good place have to make different decisions. And so in one of the little research guides that I put together, I mentioned game theory. And so I went and put together some like just simple links to like, I mean, these are as young as 13 can be in this class, right? So simple links to like, what is game theory? What is, you know, like, um, and one of my students um, pointed out that the game theory overview video I had shared, which was from like SciShow, like some, you know, YouTube channel that is substantial and credible, but not particularly deep. Like, well, they got the Nash equilibrium wrong that they completely messed up that definition. And so I was like, I, you know, I, I went over all of these videos, but I did not memorize 10 questions worth of all of these. Like, this is more of a, like, here are some sources, go explore, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've been there. (laughs) And and I mean, and I don't present them as like, I'm not teaching this content. I'm just giving you some jumping off points if this is the question you're answering, right? Like, I'm not presenting myself as an expert in game theory to anyone, least of all you all listening to me right now. Um, So... (laughs) You heard it here first. You heard it here. I know nothing. No. Um. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I should look up what the Nash equilibrium is so I can add to the resource guide, like a little note that says like, hey, this is contested, this part of this video. Um. And so the Nash equilibrium, it's named for the guy, I can't think of his first name right now, the um, A Beautiful Mind, the character that, is it Russell Crowe? Russell Crowe played A Beautiful Mind. Yes. So the the guy he's playing is his last name is Nash, and that's who this equilibrium. Okay, I almost said Alan Turing, and that's I, I wasn't using context clues that the last name was Nash. <laughs> um, Mr. Nash, Mr. Nash, Mr. Nash. Uh, that is the character. That is the person who A Beautiful Mind is based on, and um, I have actually not seen A Beautiful Mind, so I am now just basing this off of the clip I saw because of the rabbit hole I fell down. I only know he writes on a window or something. <laughs> oh, but it does have an imaginary friend, I think. Oh. That could be a, again, I'm sorry to pre-connect, but the figments of one imag- one's imagination. The actor that plays his, his imaginary friend is an actor I really, really like, but can't think of, and that's boring. Sorry, go on. So the Nash equilibrium is the concept that there's a no regret choice when you know what you're, so if you are in a competition of some kind and there is an outcome that you will, that you will get because of the decision you made and your opponent will get an outcome because of the decision they made. And both of you are going to make that decision because the other one made their decision. And both of you are the happiest with that outcome that you could have been, because if you had made a different decision, and that person, your opponent had still made their decision, you would be less happy. Or if you made the other decision, it wouldn't make you more happy, right? Like, so um, the way that 
the one of the videos that I looked at described it like they they drew like a, a a graph of traffic lights right and they said that there's two streets running perpendicular perpendicular to one another and one person has a red light and one person has a green light so the person who has the red light can stop or they can run the light right the other person who has the green light can stop or they can keep going and so the that following the law in that case is at a Nash equilibrium because it is better for both cars to follow the commands of the traffic light. Because if they both stop, the person who has the green light will be in a worse position and the person who has the red light will be in the same position that they would have been in anyway. So that is not a Nash equilibrium because one of them would have been worse off. If they both go, they're going to crash into each other and both of them will be worse off. And if the person with the red light goes, but the person with the green light stops, then the person with the, I'm trying to remember exactly how that part was. The, first of all, that's just weird, right? But um, the person yeah. with the, with the red light- at the green light. Right, is, is better off, but the person with the green light is worse. So the, the, the position where they both get the best, like they even ranked them with like little numbers for where their position would be. The, the best is for them to follow the law. And so a Nash equilibrium put into practical terms would be a law that everyone would follow without it having to be enforced is the way this video described it. That it is, um, if you know what your opponent's actions are going to be, you took the best possible choice And they took the best possible choice knowing what your actions were going to be. So everyone is in the best scenario. So the way that the film, A Beautiful Mind, describes this is that uh, Nash is sitting in a bar. I was just about to ask, why am I not using context clues today? I was just about to ask, what is, why is A Beautiful Mind talking about this? I'm like, because it's Mr. Nash. (laughs) It's his equilibrium. Okay, sorry, go on. So the the way he discovered this, according to the film, um, is that he was sitting in a bar with three of his buddies. He, of course, is sitting studiously looking over notes while they're all getting drunk because that's, if you are a true scholar, that is how you show it in a film, right? True scholars never consume alcohol. Well, if they do, it is only seriously and while writing. Yes. Um, So his, his friends... All three male friends and him are sitting there, you know, trying to get him to loosen up and he's not. And you're, you're looking like- I think I'm remembering the, the movie. Is there like a blonde woman? Yes, yes. Movie? Okay. Yes, I have seen yes. this film. Okay. 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 It's coming. <laughs> so five women walk in. Now, just in case you forgot, there's five women and four men. That's important. And clearly I only remember the blonde one. So culturally this is- Well, it's because of- the way that the film is set up. Yeah, yeah. So I I was going to say, I hope the film is the reason. (laughs) Yes. There are four brunettes and one blonde. To me, they all look very, very similar, but clearly in the film, the blonde is the one that you want. She is the prize. Um, Is very, very sexist and very heteronormative. But um, so all four men are like jaws dropped, eyes popping out of their head, can't think, can't breathe because this blonde is so stunningly beautiful. Ooh. And wouldn't it be terrible if one of us had to go home with one of those brunettes instead Not and we blonde. got this blonde, blonde. here? Man. So, so <laughs> like, I mean, they, they were all attractive young women that I like 
the film does not do much to differentiate them other than beautiful blonde background women. Yeah. So Nash is sitting there and they're as they're all kind of trying to figure out how they're gonna approach this blonde woman. And Nash says to them, You're thinking about it all wrong. If we all go to the blonde, then we're gonna block each other and overwhelm her. Plus, if all of her friends feel left out and snubbed, then they're going to pull her away and none of us will go home with the blonde. But if we each go toward the other women instead, or or, then they said, but if we realize that we've been rejected and then go to one of the brunettes, nobody wants to be the second choice. So they're going to reject you. But if we go to the brunettes first then the blonde is going to be sad. It feels like nagging, right? Like oh, this, this like, seems like miss. I, I can't picture Russell Crowe. I can only picture mystery, the pickup artist right now. Saying. Right, right. So go after the brunettes so that then the blonde will feel like, oh man, I need, I thought I was the prettiest and now I'm not. And so that, but the whole point was, was that he realized that I can't remember which economist he names was wrong because the the idea was that if every individual does what's best for them individually, that the economy will be at its best. Because if we all do what is best for us as an individual, then we will create the best possible world, right? I think we talked about this with the um, education stuff last week. The education stuff. And he says, no, that's wrong. You have to do what's best for you and the group. You have to consider the individual and the collective because if you only consider your actions and not your opponent's actions, you can't take the best possible choice in reality because what's the best possible choice if you're the only person playing the game is not the best possible choice if you have an opponent also playing the game. And so the Nash equilibrium is supposed to be illustrated by that point. But then I kept going down the rabbit hole and there was another video that was like, that's not the Nash equilibrium because the Nash equilibrium in that scenario- Oh, that was Nash making an equilibrium. um, That was the writers of- uh, a beautiful mind making the Nash yeah. equilibrium. Oh my god, what a what a weird way to like narrativize that. Oh, <laughs> but anyways, so, this is hotly contested, and one of your students knows which one's the right one. <laughs> so this person explains: Look, for it to be a Nash equilibrium, one of the foremen would have had to have gone to the blonde because otherwise, someone has regrets because the blonde was the ultimate prize and goes home with no one. So that would be a regret. But if one of the other men picks the blonde, then the other people who ended up with the brunette would still know, like, I made the best possible choice of what was available to me. So it's only a Nash equilibrium if three of them go to the brunettes and one of them goes to the blonde. It doesn't matter which one, but so that was how this person described it. Oh, but then Um, I remembered, for some reason in my mind in the movie, I thought then Russell Crowe went and got the blonde at the end. No, he leaves and, like, goes up to her like he's going to approach her and the other guys are like man you're just trying to get the blonde for yourself and and like says thank you to her and then runs out of the bar to go right furiously yeah, because he's his, so smart and so yes. engaged no time for booze no time for women right even if i could get the blonde right um so yeah so in this very sexist reductive terrible way they inaccurately portrayed the nash equilibrium and that is my researchy thing that's so interesting. I feel like there's been a real popularity in like collaborative games that you all win or lose together. And I'm very happy about that. 
Yeah, I just played all of um, Le Pandemic Legacy season one with my husband. And that's what we did while in quarantine. We did the whole thing in about three weeks, which was a bit Oof. intense. <laughs> I need to get that because that's a good one. And that's the same people that did Forbidden Island, which is a great. If you want, if you want to sim, have you played Forbidden Island? Yes. Yeah, we have Forbidden Island. It's like a starter collaborative yeah. game. Before you do Pandemic, get Forbidden Island. It's easier, breezier. But there are people, man. There are some people that will not play that. Um, really? I don't, I don't want to call anyone in my life out, but there's someone that was like, no, I want to win. Oh, but you're like, we can win. We just all win. Together. What's That's the point? <laughs> I love this person very much. And I'm sorry if you are feeling personally attacked right now. Um, so, yeah. And it might have been me. No, it, was, <laughs> it took me a sec. I'm very competitive. I'm very competitive. But... They just, they were more fun. So yeah, Nash Equilibrium. And now you know. Okay. So my research thing is, um, I feel like this fix this, I, bleh, I feel like this goes with a lot of things we've discussed and I don't know what from it I want to talk about now, but I was not reading this book. It's called Mind Fixers, Psychiatry's Troubled Search for the Biology of Mental Illness by Anne Harrington. And it is a great book. I've read it now, but my husband was reading it the other day and he texted me. I was teaching, so I couldn't look at my text and I teach for three hour blocks. And then there was just like five paragraphs of text from him because he was so excited about this section of the book. Um, and it is, it's about, it's about the history of mental illness through psychiatrists and doctors trying to find a biological, um, root for it and how, and to find a physical root for mental illness. It tells the history of when Freud started talk therapy. And then what this goes into the section he was very excited about was how and why talk therapy kind of fell out of favor it for pharmaceuticals instead in treating mental illness. And it's not that talk therapy isn't used, of course it is, but how did we get to where pharmaceuticals are readily accepted and are used to treat mental illness? And it's a really interesting history. But he um, called me because, and you know, I'm, I'm fine. We'll talk about mental health on the podcast. Um, he was like this, he was like, you were so unlucky to be a young person in St. Louis who had to go into kind of the psychiatry rounds between 1995 and 2003. And it's very like, specific. It's very specific to be a young woman in St. Louis, 95 to 2003, who went to a psychiatrist office. And I did, right? Um, I did too. I, I am in that same window, same region. Yeah. Ooh, so I wonder... So my long history with like mental health and seeing psychiatrists started when I was 17, 16, 17, that would be about 2002. So in this window, and I went to a psychologist and talked and talked. Well, I didn't talk and talk. Actually, I talked for like one session and then they had me fill out a worksheet and then they told me I was bipolar and that was it. And then they said, well, I can't help you. They sent me across the hall to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist was like, do you know why you're here? I'm like, I don't know. So-and-so said I was bipolar. And they're like, yeah. 
And now here's all this medicine. It wrote me like five prescriptions. And I'm like, wait, what is this? What does this mean? Why? And they're like, I'm not going to talk to you about it. That's not my job. You know, here's your medication and make sure that you schedule like a blood level liver test in a month. Cause it was like tons of heavy duty antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, lots of stuff in combination with so many drugs. And when I think back to that moment, when I'm like 17, being like, what's happening? I filled out a worksheet and now you're giving me all these pills. And then whenever I would go to a psychiatrist and say the word bipolar, they would go, oh, and treat it very differently. And no matter what I did or what I said from that point, that's what they were treating. And they were treating it with a lot of drugs. And so all this is to say about my personal mental history, I am not bipolar. That was a misdiagnosis. And I, it took me a long time to stop taking all these medications that were only doing worse for me. And that's not to say medication's bad. I take medication for mental health for other things now. Just but, properly um, diagnose things that yeah, someone not, actually spoke to you about. Not, I was taking lithium for a while, just straight up lithium. And they're like, let's see what works. So anyway, I sometimes tell people that story and maybe get the look like you get like, Bleh. and I'm like, no, no, it's fine. But for a long time, like there's a lot of drugs that I, and also here's a pre-connection. I had just gone on birth control for the first time in my life. So you're taking all these massive drugs. I started the birth control pill. Who knows? I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. I started college. That's scary. And you feel crazy all the time. So anyway, the reason this has to do with the book and my husband got so excited was that happened in St. Louis. I went to, it happened right before I went to undergrad. And um, then I continued seeing psychiatrists in St. Louis through undergrad. And they were all very close to WashU. And basically Washington University, which is in St. Louis, is very, very linked. It started about a little before 1995, but one of the people researching bipolar disorder, right when it was switched from manic depressive order, it was called Circular Insanity before that. It's a really fun, fun history. It's a good book that tells this history well. But, um, and they did all sorts of tests with like giving guinea pigs lithium. And do you know, fun fact, 7-Up? much like Coca-Cola had cocaine, 7-Up is called 7-Up because of the um, atomic number or some carbon element or something of lithium. I did not know that. And it elevated your mood. So 7-Up originally had a lot of lithium in it. So anyway, this basically that's what they used to treat bipolar disorder for a long time was lithium. And then about 1995, and that's a naturally occurring element. Drug companies don't really make money off of it. In 1995, drug companies, pharmaceutical companies got very interested in how do we make money on something for bipolar disorder. They kind of turned their attention to that. And a lot of that had to do with Washington University. There were doctors there who were studying bipolar disorder and really, um, they're also writing the DSM-3. And so they wanted to get it in there the way they saw it fit. And they really, 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 in St. Louis especially, this idea that the way to legitimize mental illness was to move it away from talk therapy. The talk therapy somehow delegitimized their profession as doctors and the biological 
realness of mental illness. And so there was a big move, which kind of centered at WashU, that psychiatrists should not do talk therapy. They are there to prescribe drugs. And it happened right at the same time when big pharmaceutical companies wanted them to prescribe drugs for this for bipolar disorder. And so they also started changing it to where they would they would um, diagnose it up until the DSM-3, which they were writing, it was not something children or young adults could have, period. But then they change it all of a sudden about 95 to say no. And the amount of children under 18, and I was under 18, barely, um, that were diagnosed with bipolar went from about 20,000 to 800,000 in the US. And it was like a 40-fold increase. And then it was just treated very aggressively with a lot of pharmaceuticals. And this wasn't the case everywhere. And this was fairly new when I was seeing psychiatrists in St. Louis, which was the heart of where this was. And so it was, it's a great book. I highly recommend it, Mind Fixers by Anne Harrington. But it was also just so great in a way that I have this story from when I was younger. And I, I feel... It makes me feel so lost and confused because I didn't know what was happening and no one would tell me what was happening. And for years, I couldn't find a psychiatrist that would talk with me. And they're just like, it's not your job. And this moment when you're like 16 or 17 and you go into an office and they're like, I'm not going to talk to you. That's not my job. And that's rooted. That doctor probably went to wash you. That is rooted in, in them asserting their doctoral importance and knowledge and a legitimacy in treating mental health. Mind fixers? Is that what you said it's called? Mind fixers. Psychiatry's troubled search for the biology of mental illness. And it is. There's, Like I said, I do take pharmaceuticals for other issues, but it was just scary how quick they threw so much at me. I remember um, my dorm room was across the street from a Del Taco. It was a Del Taco that I think many people had been murdered at. Like people would go to the Del Taco and throw bodies in the driveway and hope someone thought it was a hit and run. Do you know anyway, that it's a Starbucks now? Oh <gasps> no! How? They it's a, it's a half Starbucks, half Chipotle, and it still has that oh, weird shape. It's such a cool shape. That's what I could see from my window in my dorm room, um, and I never ate there actually. But uh, so. The little, little, little pharmacy that I could go to was like in next to the Del Taco. I love that. Um, yeah, I stole my husband's research this week. He is reading all about the history of psychiatry for his new book. I'm proud of him. He has a book contract now. It's exciting. Okay, sorry. So... brings us to connection time connection time all right so for something weird we had the performative trauma of the growing season and other memoirs by powerful women and that we are the same person maybe there's no not any pictures together together, despite there being lots of pictures of us in the same yes (laughs) that we have memories of those photos and moments that we were both there but photographic proof cannot back us up Okay. Um, And then then pop culture was 
people wanting to take down Willow and Jaden Smith for why? Jealousy. And then the clusterfuck that was the 2000 Sydney Olympics and that sports are political. And then people don't listen to women. Um, I don't know why I laughed. I just got to laugh at everything now. Yeah, no, if you can't laugh, then what, what, what do you have left? And then the... Nash equilibrium. Nash. I almost said Nelson. Why can I not keep that in my mind? Equilibrium. Hubba hubba blonde. Get the blonde. Gross. I really like that as a principle. I hate that they basically... Couldn't it have been like a slice of pizza or something, guys? Like, I don't like... Ooh, what would be... Sorry, this is off topic. What would be... The equal Nelson equilibrium? Nash. Why? What's wrong with <laughs> Nash? Nash equilibrium for like ordering pizza so that mm. everyone gets what everyone the gets the pizza that they want. Ooh, that's a good question. Well, least, that would be good to do with 13-year-olds. Yeah, it's way better than how do we get the blonde with 13-year-olds, right? Like you didn't have to show them that clip, right? No. Okay, no. good. Not that, yeah, that is inappropriate. That's that's a not a good way to treat women. So it's inappropriate. Okay, and then uh, and mind then fixers. the history. My, yes, my fixers. fun struggle with being in and out of psychiatrist office in two thousand two in St. Louis. All right, what do you? What, I have some thoughts, but I think you have some thoughts too because you already started doing some pre connections. What do you think? I did my. I'll just relist my pre connections of people don't listen to people and that's a problem they didn't listen to the olympic gymnast they didn't listen to me they didn't listen to will and jaden what do they willow and jaden what do they want no listening's not good i'm so bad at, i'm gonna get one someday but i do want to hear i want to hear your thoughts well so i think that the whole uh, my thoughts are centering around the nash equilibrium as a framework because I think that the Nash equilibrium, the, the reason that he discovered it was because the principles before were always thinking about the individual without taking into account the other person. And so that is about listening in a way, right? Yeah. But not just listening to another individual, but also listening to your full context, right? It's like, so that you were so hyper-focused on the thing that you were thinking about, which is a thing, but you were ignoring the other things around it, which then could make you make bad choices, even for the thing that you were hyper-focused on. Yeah. And so I feel like that is, can be connected to all of these things because like the growing season, she was just telling her story and had every right to tell this meaningful story in the way that she told it. But the context around it started to kind of, in my opinion, corrupt. Yeah. I don't know about how to connect it with our pictures, but (laughs) I, but I feel like that's, I don't think it fits perfectly into it, but there is something about the person that's not in the pictures. Oh, just not being the in the picture. All, they're taking the picture. It's like this, it's an issue a lot with like moms, right? That they're so always the one the connection the is The connection is not looking at the full picture for all of them. Ooh. Because well, the- It fits with Nash, Nash equilibrium. Because you have, right, you can't just think about yourself. You have to look at the whole picture like he did in the bar. Right? Um, yeah, looking at the whole picture. And then there's literally a picture that yep. was not yep. whole. But I looked at the whole picture in my mind. Right. That why it was- you remembered it as because you were there. We were actually sitting at the same table. 
Um, and I remember yeah. that dress, that Delia's dress, all my money, all my babysitting money went to Delia's. Oh, there's yeah. also though a mini, mini connection that the Mind Fixers book talks a lot about for a long time. And they kind of, they debunk this with the history of bipolar being like, oh, but geniuses have it, has this, right? And that's like such a fucked up romanticizing of genius, which I hate, I hate genius as a concept, but of greatness and mental illness are tied together so often. And then a beautiful mind, right? He was like, he had like an imaginary friend, but he was a genius and that goes together. And then the performative trauma of your book, what was the title? The Growing Season. The Growing Season, where she doesn't get to be great if she's not troubled. Right. In that way. Ugh. And, I mean, that also fits with Willow and Jaden Smith because yeah. they've got the creative genius, but they didn't, like, I think people- They had mad. none of the trouble. Yeah, so yeah. And them societally. How dare you get no, to be good at true, art without right? suffering? But that's, yeah, that's why, that's your problem with the performative trauma that if you don't tell that first half and if you don't have that first half, you don't get to have a second half that's success. Well, come on. I think it's wonderful. And we also don't know their lives. I don't know what trauma they have. But say they have no trauma. Say good for them. And then they make great stuff. Isn't that the goal? Don't we want people to have less trauma? That really needs to be normalized. To be a boring genius. Well, the word genius needs to go and greatness needs to go. They're patriarchal, but that idea of being, of just having a Boring and happy to just live a fulfilled life without having to have gone through the ringer. Yep. You'll, yeah, that you can only have success or happiness and with, if you've had trauma and you will share it with people. I like, I like when they're like takeaways, like look at the whole picture, like a fortune cookie. I yeah. think we should try to have a, a we should, talk a, within the fortune cookie for every episode. All right. So our fortune is, cookie for today is look crack. at the whole picture. Lucky numbers are 14, <laughs> 25, 9. Um, awesome. Look at the whole picture. Go find that picture of us. I need I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I am hoping that, I don't know, maybe it's cool if we are the same person. I, I think we've both lived very successful lives being... <laughs> One person, it would make sense. No, it wouldn't. It would have been the opposite <laughs> of making sense. <laughs> but I like it. Okay. All right. Well, until next time. To you, but maybe I'm not. Right. Maybe we're just always together. Yeah. It's just now it's the time for my mental health uh, to safely carry around the illusion by clicking you off. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye.